Hey guys, it's me, Maddie Carps, and welcome to So What Else. Um, I'm not usually the person that you hear when you're listening to an episode of So What Else. Uh, we decided to do something a little bit different with this week's episode. Um, me and Caitlin together, we interviewed two guys whose names are Bo and Brandon. And uh, they are filmmakers who are making a documentary, and uh, we wanted to interview them together. So it was so fun. It was so fun. I love doing it together. I know. It was a very different vibe and, and energy than we're used to. Totally. Um, but it was a great time. It really was. I felt like, yo, we should sometimes start doing some of these together. And then also knowing they were filmmakers and knowing you're a filmmaker, I was yeah. like, you're going to eat this up. This will be so fun. Yes. It was a very good conversation uh, that we had with them. These guys are telling a very important story. Yes. Um, and we thought it would be interesting to share with you guys. Absolutely. They're making a documentary called Elephants in the Grass. It's about the crisis in the South Sudan. Um, and so in this conversation today, we talk about what's going on there. We talk about very specifically a girl, Shamira, that they had the privilege of hearing her story and what she has gone through there. Um, so they talk about her, they talk about the trauma that, you know, just generations of people now in the South Sudan have experienced. And there's just, a, there's just a lot, a lot there that we get into. And it's super interesting. Um, there's ways to get involved that we discuss at the end. Uh, things you can do to help. So I think you're really going to like this one. I think you are. It's a, it's a, there's a lot of information. Lots. In this episode. Absolutely. Uh, a lot of stuff I was unfamiliar with. Me too. Before we had this conversation. Um, so we hope that you find it interesting. Absolutely. So here's our conversation with Brandon and Bo from Elephants in the Grass. Here we go. Brandon, Bo, thank you so much for coming on So What Else. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Yes. And we have Maddie Carps here with us as usual. Hello. Well, I guess not, as, not usual. as usual. I don't know why I even said that. Matt's here. He's here. He's like he's like a spirit. Yeah. Sometimes he's here, but we don't always hear him. No. But today, Most of the time you don't. Yes. <laughs> today, yes, exactly. He's a phantom. Today, today we hear his voice, which is wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. So you guys, I came upon you on Instagram and I stalked you and I threw it by Matt and then I reached out and you guys agreed to come on, which is amazing. So I'm really excited to talk to you guys about your documentary. But before we get into that, I want to hear a little bit about you and who you guys are. So let's start with you, Brandon, just like a 30 second, like, who are you? What do you do? Yeah. Yeah. Again, thanks for having us. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, so uh, one of the funny things is uh, I've spent the last 15 years in uh, television and film uh, working in unscripted mostly, um, but it's only within the last past year that I would really kind of embrace this idea of being a filmmaker, mm -hmm. um, which is something that, you know, I attribute to Bo, who's really... Um, been a great collaborator over the last four years but it just like a quick tidbit is like we uh the first time we went to uganda you know they give you the customs forms and, and you write down like what you know what's your occupation and i looked over at bo and he wrote down filmmaker and i was like dude we're not filmmakers yet 
And he's like, no, I'm a filmmaker. He's like, I'm a filmmaker. And I was like, ah, I'm so jealous of your, your, um, self-assuredness. So that's right. it. I'm a filmmaker. I love that. Amazing. Bo, what about you? Who are you? Um, I, I'm a filmmaker. <laughs> no, <laughs> As we I, heard. <laughs> I, uh, Brandon, Brandon has spent his job in television, uh, to date. And I've spent my job in commercial work to date. And, um, this is sort of my first foray into entertainment stuff. So, um, yeah, I've been doing commercial work for a few years now. And then I met this guy and my life got a lot worse. So <laughs> <laughs> how did you guys meet? We, well, we've been going to, uh, a, the same church. So we kind of knew each other, um, from there, but not, we, we really didn't. I was going to go to, uh, South Sudan to do some work. And Bo had offered to lend me some gear. Um, and while I was picking up the gear, like two or three weeks before I was headed to South Sudan, um, I was like, oh man, I wish, I wish you were coming. Like, uh, it'd be great since this is all your gear. Um, I wish you were going. He's like, oh, no one asked me. I'm happy to go. Uh, so he dropped everything, uh, talked to his wife and got everything cleared. And uh, that was almost exactly four years ago this week. Oh, wow. Um, and that was, that was the kickstart for the, the documentary and everything that followed. So when you were going on that trip and you were borrowing the gear and stuff, were you going for this story that you ended up telling or you were going for some other reason? No, we, we, um, I, I had been shooting a lot of, um, TV in, in Africa, uh, over the last five years. And I was starting to transition away from that kind of thing. I wanted to kind of focus uh, my life a little bit differently, but I wanted to do one last trip and the, which is so funny to think that this was going to be my last trip, but the the concept was, um, there was an organization called water is basic, uh, that I was familiar with. And we, um, I reached out and I said, Hey, uh, I know you guys could use some video content. Like I'd love to come just volunteer, um, document the stuff you guys are doing. You guys can have the footage and you guys use it to fundraise and stuff. But, um, so it started off as that we got diverted, uh, Bo, Bo signed on, um, when we were headed to South Sudan to do that, uh, the war broke out in the area we were going to, oh, wow. so we ended up stuck in Uganda. So we just tried to make, uh, you know, turn, uh, lemons into lemonade sort of thing Wow. and decided to just document what we could meet the people we could. And the original idea was just to give people an opportunity to share their stories. And we didn't know, we thought maybe we'd do like a short piece or maybe like an art installation or just take the tapes and share it online. We, we didn't know what it, what would become of it. And um, we definitely, uh, I can safely say we definitely weren't expecting to stumble onto the the story that we did. And, and two years later, I'm sorry, four years later, end up with a feature length documentary. Wow. That's incredible. So you guys are based where? You're in Philadelphia? Yep. Yep. In Fishtown. Fishtown, Philly. All right. So we're in Jersey. Not so too far. Don't oh, judge yeah. us. How far candles. Philly? We are uh, about okay. two hours. Oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe hour and a half. We're in like West Jersey though. We're really, really close to Pennsylvania. Okay. So it's like a little bit more Pennsylvania culture than Jersey culture. Yeah. I mean, we're 25 minutes from Stroudsburg. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 
I've so got some know. friends up that way. All right. See, so you don't judge us too hard for being. No, we accept you. You're close <laughs> enough. <laughs> and I'm pretty familiar with Philly. I was in a band for a while and we played in Philadelphia all the time. So yeah, I was down That's there nice. a lot. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like Johnny Brenda's and where, where were you guys playing? Uh, now I'm blanking. Uh, we played, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this isn't exactly Philly, but we played at, um, BB and T arena in Camden, okay. yeah. there, which was super fun. Yeah. Um, Oh man, we played a lot of what was that small outdoor place. place? What outdoor place that I'm picturing down in Philly? The outdoor. Oh, the uh, Xfinity Live. Oh yeah. Nice. yeah. Um. Yeah. I'm totally. I'm a couple years out of the band now, so um, I'm blanking. I'm in. <laughs> what's the alt radio station in Philly? One hundred four five. Right. Is that the alt station? Yeah. Yeah. Is yeah. That the one? So yeah. 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 That's so they right. have like the big birthday show and whatever. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we played that and we did a bunch of stuff with them. So that's why Who we were always on there. Uh, we were called Saint Slumber. They're still around, but that's awesome. I'm not in it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. It's not awkward. He didn't yeah, no, it's down. not awkward. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, was your, what was your instrument? I'm a drummer. Oh, nice. You got another one here too. Brandon's a drummer. Oh, oh nice. I'm also sort of a filmmaker. So, oh, so I was just going to say, <laughs> yes. And we both got hats. We both got great. hats. You guys are best friends. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> no, Matt has a video company called Parable and he's been working on a lot of just like, I don't know, what would you call it? I'm not good at this. Videos. Just Well, right. But I mean, for like. Motion pictures. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I'm starting out with like small businesses and organizations and stuff, uh, doing video for them. My primary thing is I want to be telling, uh, primarily testimonial st- stories, um, you know, for, for businesses and for organizations or just story yeah. videos in general. It's kind of like mini docs, whatever for businesses. Um, yeah, that's, that's my thing. That's awesome. <laughs> So he was excited to jump on this interview. Yeah. All right. So Elephants and the Grass. Okay. So that is your documentary. Mm-hmm. You're going to get into it. So before we go anywhere, tell me about the title. What does it mean? That's a big question. Um, and one that doesn't get answered until like three quarters of the way through the movie. But I'll we can spoil it anyway. Um, well, will that ruin the story? Should we wait? No. No. Uh, <laughs> Maybe. No, come on. So, I mean, edit this out if it ruins it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, What do I mean, as we're going to talk about, I'm sure there's a, there's a pretty major conflict uh, that's been going on in South Sudan and Sudan for, you know, 50, 60 years. Um, And what it has boiled down to uh, for a lot of people has been a disparity between the leadership and the people, um, and how that's translated into tribalism and other forms of uh, just general separation. Um, and one of our subjects, uh, his name's Simon Peter. Uh, he was a refugee in Uganda, and uh, he he sort of told us the first year we met him that he was never going to go back to South Sudan because um, things were just too bad, and he didn't trust the government. Um, but ultimately, and this is something we got to film, but he, he did decide to go back to South Sudan. And when he was there, he, he likened the situation to, um, an old African parable, 
um, about the elephants in the grass. And when the elephants are fighting, it's the grass that suffers, uh, referring to the leadership and and the civilians, mm-hmm. uh, respectively. Um, but but his take on the situation is that uh, the elephants are fighting, the grass is getting trampled now, but the, the grass always grows back. So it's not a it's not a National Geographic uh, animal show. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> no, that's beautiful. So okay, you've kind of given us some of the background of this, but for people who are listening and they're like, what are we talking about? Like what is going on in the South Sudan? What was going on? What, what is the situation? Kind of break it down for us. Like, what are we talking about here? Like what is going on over there? One of the things to be aware of is like, we're, we're pretty hesitant to, these are really, um, they're really sensitive topics. Yeah. Um, and they're hard things for us to kind of come in and be like, we've spent four years researching this. So we're experts. It's like, we're still very much on the fringes of these, uh, of the lives of, of these people. Yeah. I understand that. And we live um, in Philly. <laughs> and we live in Philly. Yeah. I think one of the things that, one of the things that got, gets lost in that is like, just to really simplify it, the easiest way probably for the audience to kind of wrap their heads around it is um, Sudan was given independence from colonialism, British colonialism. And given the opportunity to, to govern itself, but all of the resources went to the North okay. and the Northerners in South Sudan oppressed and uh, by many people's accounts enslaved the South- Southerners. So the Southerners are, are being mistreated, enslaved, stolen, killed, uh, persecuted for, for years and years and years. And they start to rise up and these rebel groups fight for independence. Uh, they gain independence through people backing them. And then immediately, once they are given the opportunity to govern themselves, um, immediately, almost immediately, start a civil war within their own country for power. And for us on the outside, we saw this and we were like, oh, this is a very recognizable story. And this is this. And we we just assumed we kind of understood everything. And our one of our big takeaways is that um, it feels very much like this kind of African tribal. This is like kind of their issues, but it's um, it's just it's a human story of trauma. And you can imagine if your if your your mother, your grandmother, and your great grandmother have all been um, persecuted, killed, raped, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, That generational trauma um, is going to turn into turn into something and we're all capable of this. So um, I think that hopefully gives at least a little bit of a context for what um, led to this, this new power struggle within the world's newest country, South Sudan. Okay. These two elephants fighting uh, are, are just pillaging them. They're, they're two former rebel leaders, right. Who then become, have power. um, And they rule with the mindset of, rebel leaders. And I, I can't even fault them for that because it's, you know, especially the president was a child soldier. Mm-hmm. He's been in nothing but war since he was a young child. So um, it's led to over um, a million South Sudanese refugees uh, ending up in Uganda. And Shamira is one of those refugees that we met. And her story was kind of a per- perfect little cosm, uh, microcosm of, um, uh, of what everyone's going through. Everybody in that country has experienced trauma in some form and is um, in need of 
in need of our of, of support in general. So I know that in the film, you kind of simultaneously tell the story of, you know, like what's going on in the South Sudan and like the more general story of that while also talking about a very specific girl, Shamira and her mom. And you kind of like weave those together. Talk to me about like the decision to tell the story in that way and kind of take us through that. Yeah, we, we, um, <clears throat> so we met, um, Shamira that, that first trip. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, after spending a few days in the refugee camp, uh, the Rhino refugee camp in Uganda, surrounded primarily by South Sudanese refugees. Uh, the first thing we were told is like, uh, none of the refugees would want to talk to us. They basically kind of assumed we were just uh, typical American journalists. And they there was a level of frustration that's grown in the camps um, towards Western, t- towards most journalism. But um, we were just really struck by people just really feeling as though the world had turned their back on them Mm. and just being, um, having journalists come and, um, Yasmin, Shamira's mom, Yasmin told us once that, uh, she felt as though they were taking her tears, Mm. um, but not helping sort of thing. So, uh, people didn't want to talk to us. We put a microphone, uh, in a hut and we just said, look, anybody, we won't put a camera, we won't put a uh, producer, director, there won't be any of us in there. We'll just put this microphone in there and whoever wants to go in can say anything they want. They could tell a story or say anything you want and we'll try to get it in front of people uh, back in the States. Um, and Shamir was actually the only female who went in who also spoke English. So we let, at night we sat down, we listened to the tapes and what we heard was this uh, young girl. She was only, tw- I think, 12 at the time. Uh, and her story was just captivating. Like, we couldn't believe it. We had kept pausing and rewinding. And um, it's this epic struggle just to get to to, to Uganda from South Sudan. Yeah. So we reached out to her. And then we spoke to her mother, Yasmin. And we and again, we, we thought this was going to be a short piece. We'll just take her words and maybe try to do something short with it. And we said <laughs> pretty definitively, we're, we don't want to do like a full feature like doc on South Sudan and get into all the politics and the weeds with everything. We just want to focus on Shamira's story and connecting people with Shamira. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the more we researched, the more we fell in love with Shamira. And the more we wanted the world to connect with her, we realized that um, we had to connect the world. We had to give a context for her story. We had to kind of dive into some of the history, some of the politics. Um, and as we started digging, we started uh, getting, you know, uh, you know, Bo, you could probably talk about that, but it led to access in South Sudan and with some of the leadership we, we weren't really expecting. Yeah, that's incredible. I love that you set up the mic in the hut like that. And you were just like, hey, look, like we're not going to, like you were responding to the fact that you knew these people had not only been through a trauma, obviously, but then had felt like people had come in and they thought that they would maybe help them and they didn't. And you guys clearly were like, we don't want to like continue that. We don't want to like perpetuate that same pattern that's been happening. So we'll just like set this up. And if you feel comfortable, just like 
you come in and say stuff. I think that that's amazing. And like, obviously what brought you the story that you, that you got to, that's just like phenomenal to me. And it's, it's really, it's really, I mean, I'll, I'll throw this in there. It's really a credit to Brandon's uh, directing and people skills. I mean, when we got on the ground that first day was our day one of working together ever. There was very little preparation creatively or even, even relationally, Brandon and I didn't really know each other that well. Um, and coming from commercial, my instinct was let's set up a few really cool looking shots and let's, you know, get some high polish, whatever, and make a weird little 30 second sizzle out of it that would have ultimately meant nothing. But Brandon's instincts were spot on, which is uh, just taking a posture of listening first. And um, like you said, putting a mic in the hut uh, having them be their authors of their story, um, is, is something that we're not seeing a lot of in, in journalism today. Um, so it, it was, it was refreshing just to, to hear them say only what we wanted, what, what they wanted to say and, uh, no prompting. And, and I'll say to that, and I, I appreciate you saying that, Bo, but <clears throat> really, again, it goes to the credit of, of Shamira, uh, one, just her, uh, boldness, to, to walk into that hut and, and confidently tell her story. But two, when you, um, you know, you can go, whether it's on our website or, um, Instagram or whatever, we're constantly posting clips of Shamira telling her story. Mm-hmm. Um, her, the, the way she speaks, the, the, the word choices she makes, um, it's so poetic and so engaging that we, we wanted to do nothing but elevate her voice. Um, and even to the point where like the, the subtitles are her handwriting. Mm-hmm. Um, she in and of herself uh, is, is just such a force that it, we didn't have to manufacture anything, which is all we really wanted. We, we didn't want to produce uh, a story. We wanted to elevate somebody's voice and, and Shamir's voice is just uh, so so um intoxicating in some ways yeah what was the moment for you guys when you kind of knew that like you actually had a really good story here that there was like the moment where you're like we need to push this people need to Mm -hmm. hear this um what was that moment for you guys uh for me it wasn't so much of um of of one specific moment as it was the year following our first trip and this just letting Shamira's words, letting the stories that we did get to capture sink in for, I mean, we, it, it was, it was a really tough trip in a lot of ways. It, it was a lot to take in. Um, it was my first time at least uh, being in a refugee population and filming there. And um, it's just a lot, but, but having some space to, you know, play back our footage listen back to some of the audio that we captured um, and hear some of the stories again and again for the next six months or so. Um, it really just sort of began to weigh on us over time that, that, you know, we, even up till then, we didn't know what it was going to be. We didn't know if it was going to be like a 15 minute little doc for water's basic or just mm-hmm. a little, little journalistic 10 minute thing or whatever. Um, but the more we chewed through it and the more we, fiddled with it in, in editing. It just felt like it was a bigger story to tell. 
Uh, but yeah, that's, that's, it just, it just weighed on us over time. Yeah. Yeah. We, we can, <laughs> Bo talking about like it weighing on us, like it, it was, um, we, we left, <clears throat> we left that, that from that first trip. So we got to spend time with Shamir. We had, we did a much more in-depth interview with her. She agreed to be on camera and we spent time with her mom and, you know, again, that's when her mom started to tell us a little bit about her own distrust with with the media and, and things. And we were just like, hey, we're not we're not the media. You know, we're just some people that would um, although we work in work in the media, like we're here self-funded to just try to elevate these stories. We thought at that time, like the story was like, how do we get Shamira an education? Mm-hmm. It was this idea of like. She should be a she should she's so intelligent she's so bright she should be a future leader for South Sudan, mm-hmm. and she should be somebody who's there on the ground rebuilding their country when it's time for it. So we were really focused on education. We committed to making sure that we would raise enough money somehow to commit to sending her through school. That was the promise, and that we hoped to come back. And um, you know the the thing that changed for me we we decided to go back to continue to try to raise some support. We decided to go back and gather a little bit more of her story and get a little bit of an update. And on that second trip, that guy, Simon Peter, who said he would never go back, we had a year to start understanding the context and the history and the political turmoil and that this isn't something that just started to happen. It goes back much further and it's 50 years and um, cyclical violence and generational trauma. It, it just, we started to realize that this was a much deeper story. Mm-hmm. Um, and Simon Peter started talking about trauma and trauma healing and th- these new kind of concepts that we weren't familiar with. Mm-hmm. And when he was like, I'm actually, I, I think I'm gonna go back. I think I'm gonna go back and fight for peace. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were like, we can capture this. We can be there, we can see this there's something that's happening here that's much bigger than anything that we set out for. And when we kind of committed to seeing this thing to the end and committing to a future length doc, I think was right around that time. Yeah. I heard on one of the clips on your website, I don't know if it was Simon Peter or who exactly was speaking at the time, but um, he said that, you know, like this is a generation of people that have been like deeply impacted by trauma and like, the children interact in different ways because of the trauma and they don't know anything else. Can you speak a little bit to that? Like, what are, what are they seeing because of the trauma and what do they need in order to heal from that? Yeah. Some of the, the quote is something along the lines of, uh, they were born in the war and we raised them in the war. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, the, to that point is like everybody, everybody in South Sudan at this point basically has been affected by some form of either this civil war or the civil war that they, you know, kind of ended uh, a decade ago. So um, he he's, you know, part of what he's getting at, which was an eye opener for us. We were there to raise support for clean drinking water mm-hmm. and, you know, for food and stuff, which is obviously the most it's essential. It's, it's very important. And the work that water is basic and these other organizations are doing is, is very important. Um, but to his point was, uh, you know, the food and the water isn't enough. 
It's like we need education. Um, and not only education, we need this, this, some form of trauma healing, yeah. um, which became a big focus of our documentary and kind of looking at the, the science, uh, the kind of the brain science of trauma and how the, the brain is rewired after uh, an experience of trauma and how that is actually, you know, the, the, um, our experts that we spoke with basically were saying, you know, this is one of the biggest global health issues facing the planet right now is, is the effects of trauma on the brain and on the body. And yet it's also maybe the most cost-effective crisis that we can, can, um, Mm-hmm. Can, can overcome. So yeah. they talked about some different um, resources and techniques and some of the partners that we partner with on a, the documentary um, talk about different resources. But in the film specifically, we look at um, some people who would come to the camp and hold these um, kind of trauma healing rallies sort of thing. And um, Bo uh, could probably speak on that a little bit more specifically, but... Yeah, and 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 to what Brandon was saying about um, our experts in Michigan who helped us understand uh, how effective it is. Um, something that we saw every time we saw a trauma healing in South Sudan was how easily the process can be multiplied um, when a group of you know uh, thirty women goes through a trauma healing seminar. Part of the seminars they're given training to take that back to their villages and to, um, to, 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 to practice these exercises with other people, um, these ways of sort of self-treating trauma and being able to open up with each other. So, um, that was when, when we were there, that was definitely one of the more rewarding things was, was to see people learning how to help themselves in this way. Um, and, and it, apart from so many other things, which are so dependent on outside resources like water and stuff like that, um, trauma healing is truly one of the more empowering, uh, processes that, that we can, we can be lifting these people up in. Yeah. It's so interesting. Cause we were just having a whole conversation about that. You know, more recently on this podcast, we've had a lot of guests on who, um, have talked about like going through severe traumas, rape, um, loss of a loved one in like a very violent way, you know, things like that. And something that's come up in people's stories over and over and over again, when we ask them, like, how are you able to like move on? How are you able to move forward past this thing? And every single one of them always say like, oh, well, you know, I need I needed to go through this very specific trauma healing that I went through. You know, like we had one woman come on and talk about EMDR and and just yeah. like all these different types of trauma healings. And like, they're very clear that like, you know, they all of them have, you know, very strong faith. And like, they believe that, you know, God is walking them through it and all of these things. But they say like, a very, very important part of my story is my faith coupled with, this trauma healing that I had to go through, you know what I mean? And it's like, these are grown adults we're talking about. And you're talking about like, we're talking about kids here that have been raised their whole lives. Like all they know, like you said, like we raised them in the war. That is literally all they know. Well, yeah. I mean, um, you know, one of our experts, Dr. Dr. Rosh at Wayne university. Um, yeah, he, he was just kind of walking us through, um, you know, all the different ways that, um, 
trauma, this concept of generational trauma and how trauma uh, doesn't just affect the person, but like, um, you know, there's studies of women who are going through stressful or traumatic, a traumatic experience. And literally the, the, um, it can be passed through the the breast milk to, to basically uh, signal to the, the child that she might be carrying, like, Hey, w- we're going through a traumatic event right now. Okay. So like your body is rewired to then say like, okay, we're, we're in uh, survival mode. Yeah. So even the baby at that moment, who's not aware of what's going on. Um, th- this stuff is um, very powerful in the way that it rewires our brain. Yeah. But the, the encouraging thing uh, that they, that they kept talking about is, you know, just as um, powerful as this stuff is to rewire our brains, you know, the plasticity of the brain and the ability to um, wire itself back and stuff is just, uh, is very encouraging. And the idea of faith, you know, our main character, Shamira and her mom, Yasmin, you know, talking about some of this tribalism, but also there's elements of racism and there's elements of, um, you know, being persecuted for different religions and stuff. So like Yasmin um, is Muslim in a, in a predominantly Christian country. Mm-hmm. and a country that felt that they were being persecuted by the northerners who were muslim so she she experienced a different level of trauma or a different type of trauma than even the people that were around her yeah. um and yet you know like she was going to these um these different trauma healings and there's you know her muslim and there's christian and there's all these different things but that that's the the beauty of the the trauma healing and the beauty of the human brain is it's not, again, it's not a, it's not a race issue. It's not a religious issue. It's not this thing. It's a, it's a human brain issue. And, you know, we have the ability to uh, provide real relief, you know, for someone who experienced insomnia, you know, insomnia, who experienced all these physical manifestations of um, just dealing with the worst type of trauma mm-hmm. and then having to to then live in this camp you know she's really been able to experience uh, a lot of um healing and freedom mm. um i've heard you guys both mention multiple times this concept of tribalism can you explain that to us well i'll jump in there i mean so a lot of what we looked at so we you know the interesting thing was we heard um, from a lot of our different experts and a lot of the people that we we interviewed and a lot of people on the ground, um, sometimes this, sometimes uh, us as Americans, when we're trying to wrap our heads around what's going on in a place like South Sudan, it's important to boil it down to like the simplest things because these are very complicated issues. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes, you know, the the war between North, Northern Sudan uh, Sudan and Southern Sudan got boiled down to this is a war of religion between Muslims and Christians. Mm -hmm. But if you really ask the people who were involved, it's much more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. This, this civil war has been broken down into, this is a tribal war between the Dinka tribe and the Nuer tribe, because the, um, there's over 60 tribes in Southern Sudan. There's all these cultures, all these ethnicities, all this, um, languages and it you know it's can be pretty separate uh but it's been boiled down to it's the dinka versus the new air mm-hmm. 
Um, so for, for us, when we first started to hear that, that felt like a very distant thing. One of the things that first opened up our eyes that this was a really important storyline for us to tap into and explore was we were in South Sudan right after, shortly after Trump won the election. Mm -hmm. And one of our main subjects, uh, his name is Bishop Elias Taban. He said, um, he's like, look, uh, if Hillary Clinton, there's at the time there were two sanctioned armies uh, in South Sudan and they were both recognized uh, as part of, <laughs> like, as part of, um, they weren't rebel armies. They were rebel armies that were in there. One was primar- primarily Dinka. One was primarily Nuer. And because they're both there in the capital and because this fighting between these two people broke out, a whole civil war ravaged the country. And he was basically saying to us to help us understand. He was like, look, if, if Hillary Clinton and the Democrats had a sanctioned army that was their army mm-hmm. and Trump and his, you know, the Republicans had a sanctioned army as their army. Do you think that uh, enough stuff had happened that a civil war could have broken out? Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like, oh, we're just as tribal. Yeah. Um, and when we started to look into that and talk to the, our, the experts, um, the neuroscientists that we were working with, they were like, this is as old as humanity. You, uh, you, we are biologically through evolution designed to trust our tribal leaders because it's, it's in our best interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, the things that scare us, whatever it is, whatever the tribal leader says, we, especially if we put a lot of faith in them, we are going to accept it and eat it up. And if we have some trauma that's causing us to live in fear or confusion or whatever, that tribal leader can then manipulate that part of your brain if they choose to mm-hmm. and say, look, your life would be better if you just got rid of this person or if you just hated this person or if these people just left you alone or these people are after the stuff that you have and you can rally a group and get them all fired up against another group if you have a mix of trauma and you have a, a leader that you put a lot of faith in. Mm-hmm. And we were like, that is happening in our country. That's mm-hmm. happening it, all over yeah. the world that's happening. And it's happened throughout history. And we, we thought this is a really important thing for us to understand. Um, not only that so people can relate to Shamira, which is our ultimate goal, uh, but we realized this, what's happening in South Sudan was kind of uh, a mere Put, put back on our own country and Amir put on myself. I realized how tribalist, uh, how tribalistic I can be. Yeah. Um, I realized how easily manipulated I'm, I'm capable of and how um, it, it doesn't take much sometimes to make us um, really slide down a rabbit hole of hatred yeah. um, because we're being manipulated. We need to, it's very important for us to understand that manipulation. Yeah. In the, in that country, um, are they, do they have the same sort of like experience with, uh, internet, social media sort Mm -hmm. of stuff over there where they're being like impacted by the stories of whatever misinformation or leadership or whatever that's being spewed around to create further tribalism? Yeah, they they definitely are. Um, their platforms, uh, look a little different than ours sometimes. Um, but they're on Facebook, they're on some of those things, but, but yeah, it's, they they aren't, they are not only up against 
um, misinformation from, uh, I guess we'll say competing people groups, you know, from other tribes or whatever, um, or just fake news from people who, um, find it more interesting to exaggerate the truth. And, you know, if, if, if somebody dies in the village over and somebody else says, yeah, I heard 10 bullets and then that gets translated into, yeah, 10 people died. And there's just this kind of, this, this, this snowball effect of, um, the, the truth turning into something that's just completely otherwise. Um, so, so some of it is innocent like that. And then some of it is also competing against, um, uh, their own government for, for, uh, truth and media. Um, and, and some of it's even international. Um, I remember sitting in, uh, a little airport, um, in Uganda, getting ready to take our little puddle jumper over to Juba, South Sudan. And um, on my phone, I was getting the news of um, the Hong Kong protesters. Mm -hmm. And in all of our Western outlets, what I was seeing was like um, that the people of Hong Kong were the victims and they were up against an oppressive regime. Um, and I remember specifically, there was one incident where somebody threw, like a student threw a brick and hit a hit a, you know, somebody in the military from, from China or something like that. And, and in, in Western media, it was, it was, it was shown as uh, defense and, you know, they're protecting their, their city from being overtaken. And uh, I looked up from my phone and on the TV in the little airport and by airport, I mean, it's like, it's a patch of dirt. Mm -hmm. And then the terminal is just like this it was just a shack with a couple couches and a little TV. Uh, and on the TV was a Chinese uh, state-sponsored uh, media outlet uh, showing the exact same conflict, the exact same footage, um, talking about all the same things, but from a completely different perspective, that these people in Hong Kong were um, uh, violent and uh, dangerous and they need to be controlled. And I remember... Uh, almost saying something to the person next to me to, to kind of want to talk about it just because, you know, I hadn't seen people in a few days. And, and the guy, the guy leaned over to me and said something about like, man, those, those Hong Kong people just really need to be, like be taken care of. And oh, yeah, yeah. wow, you're really just getting a completely different story than what I'm getting. And that, that was a moment for me in realizing that, uh, uh, I mean, just media in general is, is, is uh, so shapeable. Um, but in, in a lot of those countries that, that have very little access, South Sudan probably being the most so, um, it's, it's very prone to issues stemming from uh, misinformation. And, and one of the things that should be noted is, um, you know, one of the big lessons that we learned pretty quickly, but we, we didn't quite understand. Again, when, when everything gets simple, simplified down to um, this is a tribal issue. These people just hate each other and they just can't get along. Um, sometimes you, in, you know, in my, my head, I'm just like, Oh, this is like some kind of backwoods fighting. And like, you know, but there's a lot of money, a lot, the yeah. billions, billions of dollars to be made off of this civil war that are being made stolen, profited, different things in inside the country and outside the country. Yeah. Um, whether it's foreign banks or, you know, whatever, uh, there's a lot of money. And as, as we know, it's just human nature. Um, if it feels like, uh, 
you know, they get close and they're starting to head towards peace. You know, these people whose best interest is to have that war continue and have these people continue to fight each other will do whatever it takes to shape the um, the information that's going out there. So, I mean, we have examples of journalists that we know, um, amazing, respected, brilliant journalists uh, in South Sudan who told us, you know, they would see the local newspapers with the front pages, whole sections just um, censored out, completely just blank sections where there once was a, a newspaper article. And that's coming from the government who's censoring. But there's also stories of, you know, journalists being uh, bought, you know, somebody's bribing somebody to, to yeah. feed misinformation or social media or, you know, any of these things. So um, we're talking, there's a gentleman, John Prendergast, who's an amazing activist. Um, and he, his, <laughs> one of the things we like to quote all the time um he says, you know, this isn't a Mickey Mouse operation. You know, these are, um, it's it's closer to like mob families. Um, it's very organized. It's very ruthless. Um, again, whether that's the government or whoever, you know, yeah, you know, that's for you guys, the audience, to kind of to decide. But um, one thing that I'm very certain of is there's money to be made, um, and they are pro- people out there are profiting off of this very bloody civil war. Yeah. All right. So tell us about Shamira. Okay. So we know how you met her. We know that you, you know, set up the mic in the hut and she shared some of her stories and all of that. I want you to kind of walk us through her story. What happened to her and her mom? How did they, you know, get to where they are today? Just kind of walk us through that. Um, Shamira, when we met her was... Uh, I want to say 12. Does that sound right, Brandon? Uh, yeah, definitely. She was just about to turn 13, I believe. Yeah, she, she, um, she's 12 and she speaks better than Brandon and I do. Um, uh, she, she, again, uh, she started out as one of the people that we interviewed in, in the, the hut or put up a microphone in the hut and spoke, spoke into the microphone. Um, and her story, for us began, uh, when she was very young and, uh, it began with her parents. Her, her mother was, uh, South Sudanese and her father was Turkish. So she's actually mixed race. She's lighter than pretty much everybody else we saw there. Um, South Sudanese are very dark, very tall. She's neither. Um, uh, and, 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 and she was reminded of that by by other people fairly regularly. Um, so she was, in in essence, kind of tribeless in a country where your tribe means everything. Um, she she isn't a tribe, but it's it's much much smaller. It's not it's not Dinka or Nuer. Um, and her story kind of began when her father, uh, when she was really young, um, grew really fearful of the war and feared for his safety. Um, and eventually uh, left. Um, she thinks he went back to Turkey. Um, none of us really know. Um, and from then on, it was it was her and her mom who is disabled. Uh, she walks with a crutch. And so, uh, fast forward ten years, and she is 
talking into our microphone, telling us uh, her story of how she, she herself and her mom uh, fled South Sudan. Um, there's something indescribable about her connection with her mother that just has to be experienced to be understood. Mm-hmm. Um, and by experience, I mean, you know, through, through our lens as best as we could capture it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, um, I'll, I'll talk about one or two of the, the, the first episodes that we, we have with her and then Brandon, you can kind of round it out. Sure. So, uh, our story is broken down, uh, like we said, into these two big sections on, on one side, we have the big picture geopolitical conflict war issue and the players involved in that. And then on the other side, we have the microcosm, which is Shamira telling us we've been calling them bedtime stories because it's, it's like, we kind of take, take, take a rest from this big picture and we go into her world and we hear her stories. We see it uh, transcribed in her handwriting and uh, we see reenactments of what she's talking about. Um, and in the first, uh, the first moment of that, she talks about a, the, the time when she kind of first learned that the war was getting unbearably bad. Um, she was at school and, uh, she was playing in the yard with her friends and they started hearing gunshots and all of a sudden all the kids scattered and she's asking the question, you know, what, what's going on? Why is this happening? And, and she pretty quickly realized that um, soldiers or, or a rebel faction, it's not totally clear, uh, were converging on her school. And uh, she fled the school and, and, and ran home. And it's, it's one of the more uh, intense scenes that we have. Um, and, and I won't give any of the you know, fun bits away in terms of uh, what happens in, in, in the movie, but she, she gets back to her mother and spends the next few weeks uh, more or less kind of sheltered. And um, her mother at the time works for uh, Unimus, which is uh, a, a UN organization in, in Juba, South Sudan. Um, and it got to a point where even people she was working with who weren't from her tribe were starting to threaten her um, and make her feel unsafe. And uh, eventually one night they are at her house and uh, a few men come to the door with guns. And uh, just in time, Yasmin hides Shamira behind some furniture. And Shamira watches this ex- exchange unfold uh, of, of her mother arguing with these two men. And uh, the men say, you know, we've, we, we, we heard your daughter's inside. Um, you, you're going to have to give her up as a, as a uh, the way she describes to us is, is as a prize. Um, and her mom says, no, I'm not going to do that. You, you know, you'll have to kill me. And they do, they shoot her and, uh, Shamira watches the whole thing and they, they, they leave her house and, um, Shamira runs over to her side and she describes it really vividly. She, she talks about having to tie her mom's belly up to stop the bleeding. And, um, as morning comes hours later, she's able to get help. Uh, but Shamira sort of makes the decision um, as a young girl, as a, you know, a 10 year old girl, she says, mom, it's, it's way past time to go. Uh, and, and we have to leave. And her mom's like, well, where are we going to go? And she just says, we're just leaving. And so that's the, that's the start of their journey. Yeah. I think it, the, the journey is um, 
the journey from, you know, it's, it's actually almost probably identical would be for us uh, to walk from, from us to, to where you guys are at in, okay. in North Jersey right now. It's about a yeah. hundred miles. Um, but it's a hundred brutal miles through the, through the bush, uh, no food, no water. Um, and you have this constant threat that if you're found by the, the South Sudan army, um, they could kill you for, for any, any number of reasons. And if you're found by the rebel army, um, you could be killed or raped. Um, and it's this, this journey of, you know, uh, a mother and daughter. And, you know, that's a moment, uh, what Bo was just talking about, that's a moment where um, Yasmin sh- saves Shamir's life by putting her own life on the line. Mm-hmm. And that goes back and forth and gets repaid. And, and it, they, they are constantly sacrificing themselves for the other person. Um, and I mean, it's just a, it's just a heartbreaking story of survival. Um, what it means to, uh, die to oneself for, for somebody else. And, you know, basically they, uh, are broken down and beaten down in a way that, um, few of us could, could fathom, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but like we said, this is, uh, a story of hope and redemption and healing and, um, you know, whatever, whatever the, (laughs) we could argue politics about the leaders of South Sudan and who's, who's at fault and, you know, which countries should implement what policies and what's the role the U S should play in all this. And, um, those are good conversations to have and and necessary conversations. And, you know, we urge people to tap into what's going on over there. We urge people to, uh, you know, write their Congress, uh, people and representatives and, and make sure that people start caring about South Sudan, but more importantly, uh, we want people to care about Shamir and Yasmin, and we want people to know that in spite of what all, all of those people who are at fault are doing and whatever justice looks like there, um, that there's real victory and real healing. And, um, you know, the, there, there's not one person in power in South Sudan who's, who's more, um, I don't know how else to say it, but like, there's no more badass, impressive, inspiring person than Yasmin. Mm. Um, and Shamira is, you know, we hope if we can get her the resources and we can continue to pour uh, into her education and her healing, she's going to follow in her mom's footsteps. And, you know, the hope is that we can get people to champion South Sudan so that Shamira can pursue her dream, which is to return you know, the first one of the first things she told us in that interview after telling us this epic journey, she left us saying, you know, my dream is to, Yasmin was a, a lawyer in South Sudan. She's like, my dream is to become a lawyer like my mom and to go back to South Sudan and fight for, fight for my country and to help rebuild it. Wow. And she's capable of doing that if given the opportunity. And so our you know, talk, we, Bo mentioned early on about like the weight of the project. Um, it is to, you know, 
have the the global population turn back to South Sudan to start to care again and to do whatever we can to get Shamira's story heard so that she can, you know, at least have a shot. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's an incredible story. So as you said, Yasmin is walks with a crutch already. And then she's shot that night in her home. And she Shamira saves her basically by wrapping her, you know, and then they flee. So now they're traveling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um some something that gets lost sometimes. It's in the film, but sometimes it gets lost. Uh Shamira is able to get her mom to a hospital. Okay. And she okay. she does recover from that. So it's not as if okay. they're on foot and she's still dealing with the gunshot. Okay. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not 10 years down the road. It's, it's, right. it's yeah, she's, she's had medical treatment um, okay. and has had time to recover. Okay. But the other thing I'll add to that, um, even, even when our timeline is is blurry or when we struggle to figure out exactly when certain things happen and what whatnot. Like something we we know with certainty is how unbelievably resilient these these people are, both emotionally and physically. Like they were in such a desperate situation. Um you know, Yasmin walking a hundred miles uh with a crutch is already unfathomable yeah and um adding a gunshot wound to it for you and i sounds impossible um but it's it's their only hope and um you know luckily they had each they had each other through it and and they're such a source of of strength for each other um but i will say that just the people of south sudan in general have such thick skin uh compared to what i mean i think i would have just killed over and died at any one of these these moments mm-hmm. that that they that they had encountered during their journey um but they just have such strength and such resilience yeah i mean i i was reading you know so as they're traveling like at one point they're held hostage by a drunkard, then they're taken by soldiers and Yasmin sacrifices herself because they they want to kill Shamira. She sacrifices herself and she ends up being like brutally raped by these men. Like it's a horrific, horrific story. And something that I was really struck by is that in the end, Yasmin explains that she's forgiven those men, mm. which is really unimaginable, you know? And... I was so struck by that. What do you think, what can you attribute her forgiveness to? Like, how was she able to find that, to find forgiveness for these men who brutalized her in front of her daughter? I mean, in ways that we can't even imagine. I I, I think after... And this is something that's shown in the film. We 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 film with Yasmin at a trauma healing seminar, and that's when she uh, addresses this this issue head on. Um, and after watching her go through that process, um, she 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 says a line towards the end about uh, now that she understands trauma healing, and now that she understands how to work through it mentally and emotionally, um, her heart is relieved. And something we see 
in so many people uh, is just this idea that it's so weighty and it's so heavy to to um, carry around the anger and uh, the frustration and the stress and the pain of of trauma um, that you almost can't afford not to go through that process. Um, and if, and if you're educated on it and you're, and, and you're, and you're made aware that it is actually possible, I think so many people just don't know it's, it's possibly possible to be free from that pain. There's so many people that talk about living with, uh, recurring nightmares, um, and, and outbursts of anger that are just completely, completely uncontrollable to them and, and just things that are outside of their power and, and, and they feel so powerless, but, after being taught how to take control of that part of their lives, um, at least everyone I've seen go through trauma healing seems to recognize that that it is it it, it is it is the the best way to free themselves of that burden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think one of the things too, again, is like um, you know, Yasmin, Shamir, m- the majority of the people in these camps are are very savvy. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when it comes to complicated things, because for the majority of them, their life has been complicated since birth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think going through some of these trauma healings and things, um, they're able to kind of grasp on to some of these more nuanced ways of thinking that, you know, for, for me to give a little understanding, like, Part of me, once we decided to go beyond just Shamira's story and Yasmin's story and start to dig into um, some of the leadership and, and different things, we were constantly being pulled by either people we were interviewing or whatever to be like, this is the person you got to nail them down. This is who's at fault. Yeah. This is the one who can't get their stuff together. Yeah. And this person needs to be brought to justice. This person is a war criminal. This person is a war crime, you know, like these different things. And I think that at first it was trying to, you know, that vigilante justice of like, we're going to expose these people to the world. And you take someone like Salva Kiir, who without question has done horrific things, whether in the name of fighting for freedom for his country, or, you know, some people believe um, for greed and power, you know, whatever, whatever is true there, you know, is, is almost besides the point when you, when you see and understand that, that he was taken as a child along with many other people and forced into a war. And we talked with other people who were child soldiers, six, seven, eight years old, given a gun, told to climb a tree, told to be a lookout, told to do these things and witness these brutal, um, events, witness, witness, family members being raped and and things like that. Um, You would never, you would never take a a dog who's just spent his whole life being abused and then be like, well, this is just a, um, this dog was born to be a killer. You would, you would have some sympathy. Um, And I I hope that that doesn't come across as i I'm not, you know, comparing anybody but but i'm saying these these are human beings that we're talking about Absolutely. who have seen the worst of the worst um so it's hard to then 
bring our kind of level of justice on top of that. Mm-hmm. And I think for someone like Yasmin, who can who understands that complexity, you know, she talks about she was she was abused by people of a certain tribe, and she would then attribute not just people of that tribe, but men, all men in general, and she had just a, a bitterness and a hatred. Mm-hmm. And now that she can step back and actually say, like, actually, those people who treated me that way were probably mistreated and abused in some way, probably mm-hmm. um, were forced in the situation. She she can have a level of sympathy and empathy for, for the people who treated her that way. Um, and again, it's not to remove the idea of justice, not that, the, you know, people don't need to be brought to justice, but to say for her, for her own self to be removed from that and to be relieved of that, um, it was powerful to see. And, and something that, um, again, is a testament to her strength and her resilience. And, and to add to that, um, it, when we say it was like mass trauma, uh among a lot of people it it was it is literally everyone in the country uh is dealing uh with the crisis in some way mm. um almost half the country was displaced by the conflict um both internally and externally um and 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 like brandon said uh once you begin to get in a room with your neighbors that are from different tribes, but you're both victims of this horrible conflict. Um, at least for Yasmin, uh, she, she really started to realize like these people, are, these people are me. They're, they're in the exact same position. And um, the only thing different is, you know, the scars on our faces um, or whatever tribal markings we have. Other than that, we're, we've lived the same lives. Mm. Yeah. Which is another lesson that honestly, I think is really important for us in the States to, to again, not just say like, okay, let's, let's pity this, this people group and let's figure out what, what kind of money we can send over to them and like, you know, whatever, yeah. but actually like, let's learn from them and let's aspire to be more like them here and, and, and see, you know, it's not a red state. It's not a blue state. It's not this or that, but it's, um, you know, we are, we're all, you know, this is, this is a human issue versus, you know, the tribal issue. Yeah. So on that note, if people are hearing this and they want to help in some way, how can they do that? Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, a couple things. The easiest thing right now is that, um, you know, helping us achieve our goal. Yeah. The number one goal is to get Shamira's story out, you know, to honor what we told her we would do, um, which is to, to elevate her voice and get her and her mom's story out. So uh, we encourage people to go to our Instagram, elephantsandgrass.com. Uh, or that's our website, elephantsandgrass.com, Instagram handle um, at uh, elephantsandgrass. Um, connect with us, support us. Um, when you see Shamira's stories come through your feed, share them, elevate them, continue to push that forward. Um, stay tuned. We're, we're going to start doing uh, more public screenings. Uh, we're also um, 
starting to submit to film festivals. Um, so that sort of just public social media, getting the word out is really, is really important, really helpful. Um, we do have a page. Um, if you go to our website, there's a, uh, a link you can donate to. We still have a, a gap in, in funding to, to finish out the project. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go click on that and donate. Um, it's through Water is Basic. So it's a fiscal sponsor. It's a tax deductible donation um, that will help us, you know, with this. Um, one of the things that, you know, we explain to people is that we honor um, Yasmin and Shamir. Um, we heard them when they said, you know, people keep taking our stories mm-hmm. and not really helping. So, uh, again, we've, we've committed to, um, sh- uh, supporting Shamir and her, her education. We've committed, um, to supporting Yasmin in her small business ventures. Mm-hmm. She's also, Yasmin started a, um, savings club to help benefit the other women in the, in the camp. Um, so we've also made them, um, given them ownership, some ownership of the documentary. So if we can get this documentary out and it sells, it'll directly impact them as well. Um, and some of the other people, um, and also just check out our, our the, the partnerships we've made. Like we said, water is basic has almost completely flipped their model. They're still, uh, in the, in the water game in South Sudan, but instead of drilling clean water wells, um, they're empowering the women in in these villages to fix and oversee these wells, um, giving them not only sustainable income but also um, a place of prominence in in these villages. They're really focused on um, again elevating the the female population, especially in South Sudan, who um, just experienced the worst of the worst of the worst um, oppression. Yeah. Um, so, you know, them, there's, you know, we encourage anybody who's dealing with trauma or wants to learn more about trauma resources. We have a partner, Healing Tree, mm-hmm. uh, that are here in the States that look to provide uh, healing resources. Um, I think that's it. Oh, man, I just, I just, I, I ramble. I'm sorry. Amazing. <laughs> no, that no, was great. no, we love that. <laughs> we love that. Things to put in the show notes. It yeah. makes us happy. <laughs> yeah. Well, for real, guys, I mean... We thank you for what you are doing, for sharing with us today. I I mean, I'm sure that people listening to this are just like me and their mind is a little bit blown, you know? For sure. I mean, I I would imagine that there's a lot of people that have no idea anything about this situation at all. Absolutely. Um, So I just want to say what I think you guys are doing is awesome. Mm -hmm. Um. I can very apparently see that this like weighs on you mm-hmm. very heavily. Yeah. Um, you genuinely care about this. This is not just like a good story that you're trying to get out to people. Yeah. It's like you genuinely want to see uh, the lives of these people impacted and changed mm-hmm. um, because what they're going through is horrible. Yeah. Um, but like you said, it's a human story. This is, this mm-hmm. is about us as humans and we can all relate to it, even though some of the details are a little bit more extreme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, this is how we can be better as people. Yeah. Yeah. We really appreciate you guys having us. Yes. Absolutely. 
So yeah, we thank you guys so much. So listen, we'll link all of that in the show notes, everybody. We'll put the Instagram, the website, the partners, everything will be in there. So head over to the website, check it out, donate, all that good stuff. All right. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CaitlinElliott.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, if you want to toss us a five-star rating, I would love you forever. Check us out next week for another new episode. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at so.what.else. Editing and all that stuff by Matt Carpenter with Parable Productions. Thank you.